OT After Dark is a podcast run by two occupational therapists and is for adults only. The views on this podcast are our own and are intended for information and educational purposes only. We believe that sex and sexual pleasure are a human right for consenting adults, regardless of ability, age, gender, or sexual orientation. We discuss topics that cover a wide variety of sex and sexual practices. To be true to our strong views regarding inclusivity, we use common and slang terms regarding sexual topics, which may be considered explicit. Listener discretion is advised. I'm JJ. And we're both occupational therapists. And we're here talking to you about sex. Tell our wonderful listeners who we have on today. Today we have Dr. Joseph Christian Unko, and they are here to talk about writing the new book on sex, intimacy, and OT, and to share some of their wisdom on exciting topics related to sex, intimacy, and OT. We just wanted to give a quick update. This is a previously recorded conversation with Dr. Unko. And in the time that we've had this conversation, they have transitioned into a new role in a new city. So today they are the Associate Director for DEI Learning, Client Services, and Data Analytics at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington. Their work is centered on addressing bias, harm, and oppression, and actualizing structural change for greater equity and healthier communities. In this episode, we will hear them share about their previous work as a faculty member, as well as their work on the new textbook on sexual and intimate occupations. And we are so excited to share that this new textbook, Sexuality and Intimacy, an Occupational Therapy Approach, is now available from AOTA Press. And we had the pleasure of being contributors to this absolutely fabulous textbook. So we will put the link to the textbook on our website, and you can find it there. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So we are here today with Dr. Joseph Christian Unko, and Joe goes by they, them, he, him, and Shaw pronouns. And Joe is a faculty member in the OT program at Ithaca College. So welcome, Dr. Joseph Christian so Unko. So happy to have you here. So excited. Oh, hi. So happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the work that you do? Uh, sure. So... Um, as you mentioned, uh, my name is Dr. Joseph Christian Unko. I'm a faculty member at Ithaca College, you know, all that stuff. Um, in terms of kind of clinical practice, I've focused primarily in geriatrics. Um, I also do have some experience with mental health, um, which connects deeply to some of the other work that I'm doing um, as co-chair for the network of, for LGBTQIA concerns in occupational therapy, also colloquial, colloquially known as, quote, the network. That's how I'll refer to it in the future because the title is quite long. Um, so my doctoral work in my career has really been focused on queer health and really looking at not just what are the health needs for LGBTQIA plus individuals and communities, but how do we partner with um, queer communities um, as OTs? What supports can we provide and what does queer joy and queer thriving look like? And that's kind of a bit of... Um, 
connected to what I want to talk about with you all today is thinking about, you know, thriving beyond surviving, thinking about um, pleasure and joy and how do we enable that in the ways that we explore the world as OTs. Um, I'm also co-editing a new textbook on sexual and intimate occupations, which um, the two of you are well aware of, um, and I'm doing that in um, with my co-editor, uh, Dr. Catherine Ellis, who I know has been on the podcast before, mm-hmm. uh, a few times, I think, actually. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm excited to talk about that with you all as well. Um, is there anything else I need to add in here? <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing, if you could kind of talk to our listeners about um, is, you know, your, your, the different pronouns that you use. And one of them that you use is Sha. So can you tell us a little bit more about that pronoun and, and what that means to you? Sure. Um, so Sha comes from Tagalog. Um, my uh, ethnicity is Filipino. So my parents immigrated here from the Philippines and I grew up uh, with Tagalog and English in the house because English is also a national language of the Philippines. Fun fact, if y'all didn't know, um, English is not a national language of the United States of America. So that is, I think is always an interesting uh, point there, but um, I do ask folks to use Sha pronouns with me, um, even though it comes from Tagalog, a language that isn't spoken here in the U.S. because it is a um, gender neutral pronoun already. Tagalog, in terms of its third person pronouns, is gender neutral. It's Sha for any third person out there. There is no he or she or gendered third per- third person pronoun. So I do like to use Sha as a way to bring in my culture. Um, into the way that I navigate this world and also to point out the ways that um, in other cultures outside of the United States and Western cultures, we already have gender neutral or third gender options that exist. It's not something quote, new or progressive um, in these more industrialized and educated nations, right? Um, We're seeing now more movement in the United States with like the APA adopting they, them as a third person singular pronoun as if it's you know this new and progressive idea, but really many other cultures around the world, including my own, have um, third gender or gender neutral pronouns already built into the language and into the culture. So um, I do think it's important to, to highlight that um, as part of my cultural background. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's touch just a little bit on, on um, the book, because I'm curious, how do you even start outlining I mean I kind of we kind of know but (laughs) how do you start outlining what gets included in a book on occupations of sexual activity and intimate partner relationships um wow that is a great question (laughs) a question that we asked ourselves many times in designing the book and have asked ourselves many times since (laughs) even as we're in our revisions right now we're thinking about different ways of um kind of scaffolding the content in the book. So I would say um, to start off, you know, we are not the first textbook on sex for OT. Um, I believe that you did have Dr. Hajar on the podcast yes. as well. Can you tell I'm a fan? <laughs> Just like, <laughs> let me name drop every episode you've had. Um, but, you know, there's a previous textbook um, that's already been out for some time, um, Sexuality and Occupational Therapy, Strategies for Persons with Disabilities, uh, Bernadette Hajar, which you all are familiar with. Um, And that is certainly a book that was the only book that I had on sex and OT um, as I first got into the field. Um, 
But one of the areas that I became most interested in for me personally was um, starting from the LGBTQIA plus perspective. So um, in grad school and for my doctoral work, I focused on what are the health needs for LGBTQIA plus communities. I did a partnership with the Los Angeles LGBT Center um, for their homeless youth division. And a lot of the kind of overlaps I found as I was trying to work on supporting this um, population was thinking about um, some of our unique occupations. And one of the areas that came up actually kind of frequently even early on was thinking about sex and intimacy. Mm -hmm. How do we talk about intimate partners when many times I see um, a well-meaning, um, you know, a well-meaning inclusive OT practitioner say, oh, do you have a girlfriend? And I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> like, well, I mean, I have lots of girlfriends, but I don't have a girlfriend, right? So thinking about how is this so um, kind of endemic in the way that we approach this conversation in our profession, um, that led me to start looking more closely at sexual activity as well as intimate partner activities from an OT lens. What are some of our tools to understand um, you know, the social supports and relationships that individuals have um, that are outside of these kind of heteronormative ideas of like husband, wife, children <laughs> kind of um, family constellations, but also the sexual activity component where um, I still have a copy of my Pedretti book on physical disability oh, somewhere where there's a very tasteful image of here's positioning for someone with low back pain and sexual activity. And they um, tastefully designed it to make them slightly appear genderless, but also are kind of clearly gendered. Like you could see kind of breast tissue, long hair, and these kind of positionings that are all missionary type positions, which, um, you know, people might enjoy missionary, but it's certainly not the only position that brings us pleasure. Mm -hmm. But it's one of the areas that we thought, well, what about if you're doing, you know, doggy position or things that might be more common with anal positioning? Where is the discourse on, you know, sensory processing for different lubricants that might be more common? Mm -hmm. um, and so that was kind of one of the roots for me getting involved in sexual and intimate occupations was starting from how do I support LGBTQIA health? And then bridging into like, well, one of the overlapping areas that I see a gap in is an understanding of OT for sexual activity for queer couples and mm -hmm. queer types of um, sexual and intimate occupations. And so um, from there, I worked with my mentor, uh, Dr. Carrie Kingsley, who is still at the University of Southern California. I don't know if they would want me to name drop all of their bio stuff, but um, they were my mentor through all of my OTD. Um, and we worked with Dr. Liz Schmidt as well, who I know has been on the podcast. And we did a conference talk at AOTA, I want to say it was 2018, on um, the title is Queering and Cripping Sex and looking at the overlap with LGBTQIA and disability mm -hmm. in terms of how we help support um, sexual and intimate occupations. That was a three hour workshop. And as part of that workshop, Dr. Catherine Ellis approached me and that's where we first made sort of a deeper connection on some of the work that we're doing in um, sexual and intimate occupation spaces with me covering more of the kind of queer and disability overlaps. And of course, um, you already know about Dr. Ellis's work. Um, so that's a really long background into how we got to the textbook. So um, the textbook arose in part from conversations I had with Dr. Ellis. Um, she actually was the first person to initiate um, creating this new textbook on sexual and intimate occupations with AOTA Press. 
Um, she reached out to me um, asking if I'd be interested in authoring, I believe at the time it was like three chapters, <laughs> one on um, sex across the lifespan because of my geriatrics um, background. And for that, I engaged with um, Tayamine Arsala and Liz Schmidt to cover sort of the pediatric end. They're the early life side, I'm the late life mm -hmm. side. Um, a chapter on um, clinician bias and uncertainty in the clinical process. What is the barrier for OTPs in engaging on um, sex and intimate practice? How do we overcome our biases? How does that influence what we're willing to do and not willing to do in therapy? Um, and a um, chapter sort of on vignettes, lived experiences and lived stories that we can bring into the textbook. So Dr. Ellis already had sort of these um, ideas in mind of how we wanted to start the textbook. And in our first conversation about me authoring, I kind of challenged some of her ideas a bit of saying, you know, how do we bring in more diverse and underrepresented voices into the conversation here? How do we do work that isn't about a population, but with a population. Um, and so I think, I can't remember, she uh, emailed me this, the, the same day or like a day later saying, hey, so how would you like to co-edit this thing with me instead <laughs> and like kind of help me design it from the ground up? <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. I mean, I was going to write three chapters anyway. I might as well get a little bit more involved in the rest of the textbook. Um, so both she and I agreed that one of the areas we really wanted to lay a foundation for in the text was this kind of critical self-reflection. We really want to understand ourselves as sexual beings first and foremost and have this really deep um, self-reflection on what are we comfortable with? What are we not comfortable with? Why? How do we push through some of these barriers that we experience and our own biases and how do they influence the way we think about sex and intimacy? Um, which tied into some of the things I already alluded to around you know, heterosexism and cissexism. If someone, so if someone comes into a clinical um, setting assuming that individuals will be straight or cisgender or whatever, that guides the questions they ask. So they ask me, do you have a girlfriend? I truthfully say no. And we've immediately shut down a whole range of sexual activities and intimate partner relationships that are crucial and critical to my thriving. Um, and there might not be any recovering from that. You know, I might just say, well, that's a provider I don't want to work with anymore because they don't mm -hmm. see me as me. They just see me as this checkbox that they're trying to fill, you know. And so um, I believe about the first half of the book is engaged on questions around that. Um, critical self-reflection, clinician bias, how does systems of bias and oppression show up in our work? How do we replicate them incidentally? Um, and how do we address that? Um, as well as um, content around... Um, kind of sexual identities, like different terms and labels, but also from a critical lens, like how do we critique um, gender roles in our society? How do we understand how they are real for individuals, but also critique ways that we can be more expansive in our thinking? Um, and that leads sort of into the second half of the book where we sort of break down um, what, we what we determined was to sort of um, loosely separate sexual activity from intimate partner mm -hmm. relations. And of course, we all know that those are intimately related and have a lot of overlap, but we thought that was one way to sort of parse it out in part because the OTPF4 mm -hmm. has, a, mm -hmm. has um, more clarity on sexual activity and then intimate partner relations. So we thought that would help bring more clarity around how folks could um, approach the work. And so we broke it down into um, a section on process skills for intimate partnerships. 
process skills for um, sexual activity, which you are familiar with. And um, we kind of built off of that foundation. How do we analyze and understand the skills needed? then bring it into the occupational um, therapy process. So we have a chapter on assessment, a chapter on intervention, as well as a chapter on lived experiences where um, individuals from a variety of communities speak about their um, sexual and intimate experiences. And we've gotten to highlight folks that um, have disabilities and actually really a lot of multiple overlapping identities, someone who is um, queer, disabled and a racial minority and how that's influenced the way that they perceive themselves and the way that they engage in sexual and intimate occupations um, and all sorts of um, really valuable um, experiences that we just haven't seen very much in the literature. And so that was one of our goals as well. Um, 11 out of, I think, our total of 17 authors come from at least one underrepresented community. So we have racial minorities, we have religious minorities, we have um, LGBTQIA plus individuals, both in terms of um, uh, sexual orientation as well as gender identity. Um, we have a few folks with disabilities. Um, we have at least one author who is not an OT at all. <laughs> she comes from kind of critical feminist, critical black theory um, fields. And um, she provides a really strong um, chapter on having a critical understanding of race and sex and gender and really a perspective that we don't as often see in our own foundational literature because we're all trained from that OSOT lens yeah. and so um, her chapter in particular is really powerful for me to read. I'm, I'm really excited I'm more excited about it now even though I already knew a lot of that but I'm hearing you talk about it makes me more excited and the th the main reason I'm excited is because it really sets up a practitioner to address, to be able to look at anyone and not think about their diagnosis, not think about one element of them, but really look at any person and be able to um, address sexual activity, intimate partner relationships from that, that, you know, that word we use, that holistic view, <laughs> but it really does. It's not like, okay, this person has a spinal cord injury, so I do this. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there are certain things with certain populations that you need to think about. Um, but I really like the perspective of this kind of, this critical look. I mean, it was, it was fun for what we wrote to really critically look at sexual activity. And there were plenty of times when we sat there working on some stuff together. We're like, we get to do this for a living? We get to, like... <laughs> um, and I won't go into some of the back and forth exchanges between, between, you know, you and Dr. Ellis and us, but it was kind of funny of the, some of the comments of like some of the discussions we were having about what goes in there. Um, one of the things I love about it is it talks, the, the book pleasure is part of the, part mm -hmm. of the story in there. So earlier you talked about, um, you were telling us actually before we started the unique power of pleasure and joy is important to you. Could you speak more to that? Yeah. So going back to um, the textbook first, um, one thing I wanted to highlight, um, as you said, right, is we as OTs, we already have the training to task analyze any activity. And so Dr. Ellis and I really talked about how do we help people develop the mindset and the expansiveness of that mindset to really look at occupations of sex and intimacy in a different way. 
Because once you get in there and you see the client and you, you know, see their condition or you do your clinical observations, you can task analyze anything. You could task analyze their fine motor movements. You could task analyze their social interaction skills. But the questions you ask and the way that you interpret your observations are limited by our own limited understandings mm -hmm. of sex and intimacy. So when, um, so I teach a course on sex, gender, and intimacy, or sexuality, gender, and intimacy perspectives from occupational science, I believe is the whole title. It's a graduate elective. And one of the first things um, that I talk about is limits of our knowledge. I say, we know what we know. That's what we're, is already conscious for us. We know what we don't know. And that's exactly what the OT evaluation process is about. We see, we know that we have this diagnosis. We know that there's a lot of things we don't know about this person, which is why we do an occupational profile, which is why we use standardized assessments. But in order to interpret that better, we need to also think about what we don't know we don't know. Mm -hmm. So if someone is part of say a kink community or is into shibari rope tying, Someone, someone in your occupational profile says, oh, I'm into shibari rope tying. You're like, I have no idea what that is. How am I supposed to interpret the lens of um, what I'm seeing in my assessment if I don't know that these practices exist outside of what I consider normal or typical practices? Um, and likewise, if it comes to gender identity, someone says I'm non-binary or something to that nature, we don't know the things that we're not aware of that this person has experienced, how they might experience joy or pleasure in a different way, what are different steps in ADL dressing that they might be engaged in. If we can get to that part where we can have an expansive mindset and start to ask ourselves that question of what am I missing? What am I not asking? What am I not seeing? Then we can do that task analysis mm -hmm. later. <laughs> that person could say, oh, I am chest binding. This is how I do it. We can task analyze that. Yeah. And if I need to think of a, a hemi binding technique, I have the skills to do that. But what we wanted with the textbook was to set a groundwork where people will have that first initial, oh, there's a question I didn't ask and now I might discover something new. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, just going back to that critical self-reflection piece and as you shared, you know, what are we talking about in OT? What are we missing? That's one of the areas that we really wanted to highlight as well through that. Well, and I think it's, it's interesting. You mentioned Pedretti before. And the other thing I think Pedretti is missing, I, it's all, not only is it mostly missionary, it's all penetrative. It's, yep. It all has to do with penetration. It's like a clitoris doesn't exist in, in Pedretti. <laughs> um, so again, that goes to like, what is people are coming into these conversations. And even if it's not sexual activity, we as practitioners all come in with our own um, bias about how things are done. I mean, that could be about how your hair is, is washed, mm -hmm. right? things like that. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it is really important to, to be a catalyst. I feel like for the, the podcast, I feel like we're trying to be a catalyst for practitioners to think of new ways of asking questions of, um, of working with clients, of, of seeing people not as their diagnosis, but as this bigger picture yeah. of, of that we're and, and seeing beyond grooming and dressing and bathing and toileting as what we work on. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, you know, to kind of go back to go forward into what, um, I wanted to talk about here, which is about, you know, pleasure and joy. Mm -hmm. I think if we, you know, everyone that's listening to this podcast right now, like pause, 
play back the tape like 10 seconds ago um, because what we first started by talking about was like diagnosis. That was the first grounding point we talked about for a person. And so our training leads us into this realm of deficit thinking, mm -hmm. right? Like we are always thinking deficit first, even, even though I think many of us, myself included, would say that we are strength-based practitioners, we're client-centered, we want to be occupation-based um, and occupation-focused, but often one of the first questions we uh, ask ourselves or are presented with on the referral is the diagnosis. We are given the deficit first even as we're trying to think of occupation it's for, first all we know. or it's often and it's often all we know, all we know. A yeah name and a diagnosis the, a date of birth prescription <laughs> eval and treat yeah. for this diagnosis that's all we like will get initially and you know it's on us to challenge ourselves to go past that deficit thinking mm -hmm. right to go past the okay i'm looking for deficits and impairments and so how do i bring them away from um a dysfunction into like what I've sometimes categorized as like neutral function of, oh, unable to eat to now able to eat. To me, that still falls short of like enjoys eating, mm -hmm. has mm -hmm. pleasure and satisfaction in that, right? I don't think it's necessarily um, bad to say, oh, we're going to focus on grooming and hygiene if that's what the person mm -hmm. wants and if that's what the person takes up joy and pleasure. But Anecdotally, I would say I don't see that practiced and I don't see that reflected in our literature very much. We talk about efficacy of like, you know, independence measures, functional measures, may maybe autonomy measures, but we don't necessarily say, um, was this pleasurable for you? Why is it important? We might say, it's, is it meaningful? Oh yeah, it's meaningful for me to get dressed so I could go see my friends. I want someone to ask like, okay, what else about dressing is good for you? And I'm like, oh, well, it's really pleasurable for me when I have my nails done a certain way mm -hmm. or when I get to wear the heels I want to wear. I don't want to hear heels put me at a fall risk. What I want to hear is feels, heels make me feel sexy and I feel great when I wear them. I want to get to that level of um, looking at how we bring people into their pleasure, into their joy, into their satisfaction. Um, you said something. And it, it like it, it struck a, a nerve for me and, and it's it's almost like nails on a chalkboard for me is this term is able to. So, OK, it's good, great and grand if somebody is able to. But like you said, are they going to do it? What is the meaning behind it? All of that. And so I, I feel like it's so limiting as to what a person I'm able does. to do a lot of things. There's a lot of things I'm able to do, but am I going to do it? Probably not because it doesn't have meaning. It doesn't have context. So it's just one of those. And I think it's just a term that gets used so often and not necessarily do we really think about what those words mean. Yeah. And I mean, so I have like this clinical um, story in my head that I always kind of come back to when I think about this, but I'm going to pitch this question to you all. Like, well, especially in COVID times, I think we are even more sensitive to how much we miss stuff like this. Do y'all enjoy going out to eat with friends? Yes. I, I see heads nodding, so yes, I'll say that for yes. our podcast listeners, they're <laughs> nodding. Um, what is your favorite part about eating a meal with your friends? It has nothing to do with the food. It's the socialization. <laughs> right? It's not, can I move this yeah. fork to my mouth with minimum <laughs> spillage? It's not, can I manipulate my utensils so I can bring food? But that's what we're often measuring yeah. as OTs. And right. I don't want to say there's something... I'm not trying to say that there's something necessarily wrong with that because we do want to meet people with the needs to achieve the goals they want, but we fall short if we yeah. think of self-feeding or, you know, mealtime as solely restricted to can they get food in their mouth? Because that's not the pleasurable or meaningful yeah. part for me, right? I want to feed myself 
in a way that allows me to fully engage and experience the intimacy of this social event with my friends. That's mm-hmm. a goal I want to see. I don't care if I keep spilling on my shirt, if I can enjoy and the pleasure of the company I'm mm-hmm. with. Right. And so I myself had this sort of experience with um, in clinical practice and this sort of like kind of re, re, uh, reinforced the importance of this for me was, um, so I don't remember if I've said this in my bio, but um, you know, I've primarily been a geriatric practitioner. I used to do home and community-based um, outpatient for older adults. And there's one client in particular I always kind of come back to um, because one of the things I really honed in on with this particular client was how much the family dynamic between him and his wife had shifted because of his condition and that she felt like she had to be in uh, caregiver mode 100% of the time. And one of the things I asked, I don't know this if this was at my initial evaluation or just early on in our therapy process, I just kind of asked, how are you man- man- managing the other roles in your relationship? And they said, what other roles? I'm like, well, you're both parents, right? You have kids, your partners with each other, um, caregiver isn't your only role, right? And I turned to the client and said, caregivee is not your only role, right? And they're like, no, you're right, you're right. And like, I really challenged them to build a routine around, okay, I'm in caregiver mode for this because this is what I need to have this really close hands-on assistance um, for bathing, for example. And then like, now we're at mealtime. You can mostly feed yourself with a little bit of spillage. We're still working on that my client and then to the caregiver I'm like you don't need to be in caregiving mode right now like there's no need for you to feel like you have to be just the caregiver you can be his wife right now and she was like but what if and I said no what if nothing what if y'all just had a meal that you could enjoy yeah yeah. and what if he spills like did he ever spill on himself before his stroke and she's like yeah what did you do then (laughs) like oh we laughed about it because you know (laughs) that was our relationship and you know I really came back to talking about like okay we can we can get you independent with feeding or min assist or whatever you know would be the level that this client would be at but that's not the whole picture that's not the whole story the point isn't just this instrumental caregiving but it's really restoring the intimacy in that Mm -hmm. relationship um even if that's not the most direct goal. Like I didn't have a goal on rebuild intimacy with your partner. Mm-hmm. The goal was around feeding, but introducing the the partner into that as part of the social context that mealtime happens in. Um, and I always come back to this family because I definitely remember, you know, after a few weeks of this and them starting to shift that mindset, oh, this is family mealtime, not instrumental caregiving time. <laughs> there would be times where I'd be starting to leave the session and they'd be like, oh, we're going to sit down to a meal. And they'd be like, kissing on each other and they'd be like showing so much more physical affection that was totally absent in the first like four weeks I had worked with this client um and I always come back to that story in my mind of them just saying like no honey we're not in caregiving mode this is like partner time (laughs) and they just like it just transformed their relationship to the work that they were doing um and to the relationship that they had they had lost some of that in the disease process and I think um I always just think about them. I still think about them today. I'm just like wondering, like, are they still showing that intimacy towards each other and really being able um, to feel that pleasure and wholeness rather than just independent or functional, you know? That's really a beautiful example. Yeah. And something 
I hope listeners take with them, especially, you know, we have a lot of, we're in the middle of this listener survey, and as I'm peeking at it, um, we have a lot of students, mostly students listening, and I think it's really easy for when you're a new grad to get caught up in all of those those productivity numbers and all of that. Um, and you can still you can still do your job and bill what you need to bill, but let people understand that there can be pleasure in their life and those those little things like a like meal time. Um, we can't forget that it's not. It, like you said, it's yeah. not just about getting the food in the yeah. mouth. Well, and, so and, much more and supporting it. all those different occupational roles, exactly as you, you mm-hmm. know, beautifully outlined, you know, that it's not just the caregiver role. It's not that, but, you know, really, you know, what are the, the areas of their, their roles that are limiting and then how can you then enhance these different um, occupational roles within their life? So beautiful example. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your uh, point about, you know, productivity, there was nothing about what I just described that isn't productive, Mm -hmm. that wasn't billable, you know, and I'm not going to get into CPT codes on this podcast right now, but (laughs) all of that was billable. All of that was part of my caseload, all of my productivity Um, at this practice at this point in time was actually pretty close to 100% productivity just because of the nature of the kind of work um, that we did. Um, And I got my productivity numbers just fine because we were still doing the occupations that were needed. Yeah. We were still documenting their medical need, but it was a, it was a mind shift more than anything else to include mealtime and include the dynamic context that it happens in, which is part of our practice. I think it's okay to talk about CPT codes because I think it's okay to, for, Mm. for people to understand that there's nothing like nothing you described, like you said, wasn't completely appropriate to bill. And I can think of a variety of CPT codes there that it could be under. Um, and because you can't just, mealtime can't just be about the biomechanics of getting food in your mouth and chewing and swallowing. There's, mm-hmm. there's as an occupational therapy practitioner, there is so much more to mealtime. Let's, let's talk more about pleasure. Yeah. And you had mentioned something earlier, which I am very intrigued about. And I would love to dive into this topic mm-hmm. about putting the OT in erotic um yeah what a great soundbite right the ot and erotic i can like see the t-shirts already (laughs) um you know so you know i alluded to this uh the sex course that i'm teaching and one of the first uh pieces of media that we actually um engage with is audrey lord's uses of the erotic I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with that. It does not come from the OT sphere. Audrey mm-hmm. Lord is um, not an OT. <laughs> um, but I do um, like to talk about her as kind of a grounding point um, in the work that we do as OTs and the way I think about sex and intimacy. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure if y'all are uh as familiar with Audre Lorde. Uh, she is an American writer, feminist, womanist, librarian, uh, civil rights activist. Um, I have a quote on my first slide where I introduce her where she refers to herself as a black lesbian mother warrior poet. <laughs> so um, a lot of different it. you know, roles that she holds. Um, and Uses of the Erotic is a, um, an essay and speech that she does um, where she, well, did, sorry, she passed away in the 90s. Um, But she talks a lot about the ways um, erotic power can shape the way we look at the world. And so um, she has this kind of metaphor of um, 
this like margarine that and I have to admit this precludes my this is pre prior to my time of knowing what margarine is but I think she said in about like the 40s or 50s you would get this bucket of margarine and there'd be a small packet of like this like yellow packet uh, pellet that you have to smash and mix into the margarine y'all are looking at me like this may this may precede all of our times and experiences it sounds like it yes but so she has this metaphor that she talked about you know margarine used to be this yellow pellet that you had to kind of break up and massage into the rest of the margarine and it gave it its color its flavor um all of the above and she talks about um erotic power and pleasure as similar to that that it's this nugget and kernel inside of us and we have to unlock it and um, sort of um, massage it into the whole of our being. And once we are full of this like full aliveness um, and really truly power in our eroticism that it shifts our mindset. We can no longer accept the oppression that we've experienced. We can no longer accept the um, exclusion we may have experienced or just accept neutral as something that we strive for because once we felt the fullness of our being um, our full aliveness our full pleasure our full joy that becomes the metric that we measure everything else against and so um that is like probably the messiest summary i could give you on this like but beautiful really essay if anyone is it's really powerful super powerful <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and i think um if anyone's looking for the source it's called uses of the erotic um, I believe there's at least one YouTube recording of her actually delivering the speech so you could hear her in her own voice talk about it. Um, obviously, we want to contextualize the time. This, I think, was like 1978. So some, some metaphors, like the margarine metaphor, may feel antiquated or need a little bit of deeper digging to kind of get at. Um, but um, the whole point being that like once we experience this full pleasure and joy, that becomes our metric. And so coming back to the idea of mealtime that we just described in that story, if our metric is independence with feeding or standby assist with feeding, all we're ever going to get at for that person is, oh, I can mechanically bring food to my mouth and therefore survive on nutrition that is put into my body. Versus the fullness of, as you described, your favorite part of having a meal with friends isn't the food, it isn't mechanically bringing the food to your mouth, which again is important. I'm certainly not suggesting to any of our readers to avoid <laughs> the biomechanical skills needed to self-feed, but to like take it to that next level. How do we feel truly alive and present and joyful at mealtime? For most of us, it's not sticking a piece of food in our mouth and swallowing, right? It's really about experiencing the meal in a context relevant to our culture to our social sphere and to those other elements of our occupations, which are part of our scope, but not always talked about in terms of our interventions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, so when I think about, you know, pleasure and joy, you know, it's really the basis for us understanding ourselves, our place in the world and what we demand of the world. I want, I want healthcare practitioners to bring more joy and pleasure into my life. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to just give me independence or just give me function. That's important, mm -hmm. but it's not the whole story. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get me into a place where I feel like my short time on this earth has been worth living, you know? Um, and so sex and intimacy for me is one of those areas where we can experience joy and pleasure in different ways. Um, and I think earlier you had said, you know, 
we're just showing this like penetrative sex model is what we see in Pedretti and in a lot of our discourse. There are so many more ways to experience pleasure that isn't just penis in vagina sex, mm -hmm. penetrative sex, right? Yeah, right. Um, and not all of it is things that people would consider, you know, penetrative sex activities. We can have pleasure from massaging each other. We can experience pleasure just from sitting in silence, looking into your partner's eyes, right? Like that may give us a different sense of joy of being and pleasure. Um, so I think that's one of the challenges for our profession. And I will um, say as much as you can hear my passion in talking about this, I still don't feel like I'm an expert on this. And I'm looking for, um, for all of us together, you included and all of uh, our listeners and our colleagues to start thinking about like, what does pleasure mean and how do we begin to bring in more of a focus on to joy and pleasure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is very much a, an under discussed topic. And I think kind of like what you said, like, you know, not being experts, I think it's because, you know, a lot of it isn't necessarily as discussed as much and um, bringing it into the conversation as you are doing, I think is really important and thinking about these concepts of pleasure. And even if we're going back to the concept of mealtime and even taking it out of the context of intimacy and all that, but the pleasurable experiences that happen with a meal, the smells, the sensory experience, the flavors, mm -hmm. and how that can then give somebody pleasure um, in that type of experience as well. Mm -hmm. And and really just, th this this concept is yeah. just so exciting. It's really exciting. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that because I think, I forget which one of you said, it. I think it was Kay that said like, for me, it's not the food. For me, it is the food. <laughs> like, for me, I had like my cultural background has a really deep connection to the foods mm -hmm. that we have for, my own way of replicating my culture and feeling close to my culture at home, especially in COVID times, has been to cook a lot of my cultural foods. So in a lot of ways, it's that pleasure of the meal. But often, I mean, again, going back to some of the ways I've seen OT practice, I know these aren't the only ways, but I was trained on one of the things we can do with a, a client is make a sandwich. It's easy. It doesn't involve the stove, has fewer steps. I can understand that culturally I don't eat sandwiches like it's not part of my cultural foods like you would fall way short for what I experience as pleasure and feeling my full self as a cultural being and it's, if that's the food we go for it's so much you more know? fun and amazing to be like hey what do you want to make in the kitchen tomorrow because <laughs> the number of of family recipes that I have learned over my career mm -hmm. just by asking hey we need you know we're going to work on you know some kitchen safety or whatever what do you want to make in the kitchen and then next thing you know I'm at the grocery store getting ingredients for some long like century old <laughs> family recipe so much more better than a sandwich. I mean, the sandwich sometimes comes into play, but it's it's so much more meaning and pleasure and just, joy. Yes, it brings in that yeah. that need for meaning and the importance of meaning in these occupations yeah. that people engage in. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, kind of tying to the cultural piece, one thing I wanted to highlight too is, um, and I'll I'll put the caveat of I always find this somewhat ironic to talk about, but I guess also part of my experience that. Um, I also just recently uh, co-authored a chapter on LGBTQIA trauma mm -hmm. for a new textbook, um, Trauma, Occupation, and Participation. Um, it's from AOTA Press. I wrote that with um, Dev New, also known as the Rainbow OT mm -hmm. on Instagram, and uh, Nuria Newman, who is also on the board for the Network for LGBTQIA Concerns in OT. And um, one of the things I want us to think about is, you know, trauma-informed care is 
critically important. Understanding trauma is critically important. However, what I see pretty often um, in practice and in research is a focus on trauma and coping. You know, how do we address trauma in general? How do we mitigate stressors re related to trauma? How do we reduce um, anxiety and the impact of trauma on occupation? And again, for me, that's like, okay, we're working in the place of bringing negative to neutral, but how do we talk from now that we are mitigating or actively coping, how does that link to joy and pleasure? Because an absence of stress and trauma is not joy. Mm -hmm. An absence of stress and trauma is just neutral. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, that's something that I'm currently trying to explore. I'm, um, I have a study that we're just starting to design. It's hard to try and design a study yeah. around how do people experience joy? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. that's a hard question. Um, and you know, I do qualitative research, so that is a better sort of uh, set of approaches to try and understand, you know, phenomena of joy and pleasure. But um, it's hard finding background lit to help support a rationale and to help understand what that is. So in a lot of ways, um, we're sort of in this cycle of we have so much literature and support around trauma because the lit and support to deal with trauma is more documented and therefore easier to build more studies off of. Mm -hmm. But this area of like, what does joy, thriving and pleasure look like is um, not as documented. And I don't have as many models to even think about how to, how to do more scholarly work on this area so we can document it and bring it into our literature. Um, if any listener knows some sources, please hit me up. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it is, I, it's one of the things that I've been finding. And um, I think this correlates to one of the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, euphemisms that I hear pretty often in our profession. I can already imagine, um, dear listener, you might already be thinking, oh, but we have the COPA and we talk about satisfaction with occupations. I don't feel that satisfaction is pleasure. Again, I think satisfaction is maybe just slightly east of neutral. Mm -hmm. But if I say yeah. this occupation is satisfying to me, I usually mean, am I competent in it? And I am not um, harmed by it. That doesn't mean it's the most pleasurable experience for me just because I'm satisfied with my ability to put on my clothing yeah. Yeah. that's appropriate to go outside. That doesn't ask, do I feel sexy in it? Yeah. Does It doesn't ask, do I find joy and pleasure in it? You know, we have measures for meaning. We can do things that are meaningful that are also harmful and non-pleasurable for mm -hmm. us. A lot of the work I do working with trauma um, is not is highly meaningful, but not very pleasurable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and likewise, same things with satisfaction. We have folks who are satisfied with their newfound mm -hmm. abilities to do X, Y, or Z, but does that mean it's pleasurable and joyful? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. Um, Again, that's not me reading the copum to filth or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, we have to be um, thoughtful about how far are we actually taking people and yeah. can we take them further? Yeah. And, and, you know, bringing this up, do you have suggestions and how do we how do we take that next step and continue on that we're not just stopping that, okay, you know, you, you feel satisfied, but how do we get you to feel that joy and that pleasure? So how can we take it to that next step? Yeah, so um, maybe unsurprisingly, my first... Uh, piece of advice is going to be to engage in critical self-reflection, mm -hmm. right? Like I need you, myself included, all of us need to be having really honest reflections with ourselves on like, where are our limitations? And we need to think about like, 
how to build more nuance into our perspective. And I'm saying that because we are in a very polarized um, society and um, with folks wanting to say, well, oh, Dr. Inko said the copum's not a great measure of pleasure, so I can't use it. Is like, I can imagine some folks thinking that already because I've experienced that. Mm -hmm. And maybe y'all have too, where people say, oh, well, you said this tool might be problematic for this way or might be limited in this way, therefore I have to throw it out. And it's not that, it's a yes and. Mm -hmm. It's a yes, let's use the copum. And let's visit the part where they say these are what is satisfying for them or meaningful and supplement it with questions around what is joyful for you? What is pleasurable for you? Oh, what is important for your daily function? That's important. Mm -hmm. We want to have a base of our routines, our roles, our rituals, all of the things that um, are important for us to engage in the world. And we want to take it to making sure there's joy as part of that daily routine, you know? And so um, that first step, yeah, ask yourself those questions and you have to let yourself become comfortable with that, um, with that nuance. It's hard. It's and especially hard. with productivity demands and with our training and education, it's really hard to sit there and say, oh, I love this tool so much. Like I love the Moho personally. Mm -hmm. Like that's my favorite model. I will talk about, I could talk about Moho all day it doesn't go far enough in some ways, right? And it's not to say, oh, now I can't use Moho. It's for me to say, these are the things I love about Moho. This is what it helps me by using Moho to think about occupation and to think about the world and how I can add these other ways of thinking about the world into the way I want to approach this. It's so interesting that um, that and part speaks, I feel like you're speaking directly to me. <laughs> My doctoral research was about quality of life for people with inflammatory bowel disease. And the overall general result was that, that um, the people I surveyed fell into this adequate quality of life, but room for improvement. And my final argument at the end was like, that's not enough. As OT practitioners, we really have a place in this, in this population to give them more than adequate quality of life. Um, but I really like that phrasing of like, and we like, yeah, it's adequate, but, and we can do all of these other things to, to, to find pleasure and joy, which was basically the conclusion of my research. But I feel like you just put it in much better terms. I'm going to rewrite things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think yes. And is something that's really, um, the improv world. <laughs> it's definitely in the improv world. Yeah. And so, um, there's that, but I think it's also just really, um, it's a good tool mm -hmm. to start with if you're someone that like feels um, like you, I mean, everyone has room to grow. So if you don't feel like you have room to grow, I'm just talking especially to you, you probably really need a little bit more support to grow because we all have something that yeah. we can work mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I just did this yesterday with my students. One of the exercises I've done with my students in the past, um, I just did this yesterday actually was, um, they're about to go off on uh, fieldwork. They're about to graduate in a week. And I said, I have two questions. One, what are you most nervous for? Two, what are you most excited for? And often there was a, oh, I'm like really excited to go on my first fieldwork, but I'm also really nervous about fieldwork because I don't know that I'll know what I'm going to need to do in things. And everyone shared something similar to that. It, you know, it could be finishing school. It could be going on fieldwork or whatever it was, but it was always a, but I'm excited for, but nervous about, or I'm, ex or I'm nervous about fieldwork, but I'm really excited to work with the clients. And I'll ask us to just pause and reflect on that for a moment. Cause even if you hear me say, 
I am nervous about going to clinical work, but I'm really excited to work with clients. We tend to end up focusing on whatever happens after the but as like the truth of what we're talking about and sort of like, oh, well, I said I'm nervous, but I'm actually most excited. That sounds really positive. Mm -hmm. I could say the same thing. I'm excited to work with clients, but I'm really nervous about my first field work. And if you just take a beat to like mm-hmm. think back, how did that feel? It feels like I'm mostly anxious mm-hmm. about fieldwork and not excited versus the first way I said it was, oh, okay, clients are going to get me excited, but fieldwork makes me nervous. Like mm-hmm. whatever I said before the but doesn't, is not as important. And so the activity I did with my students after asking that question was, okay, now take what you just said and now it replace the but with an and. I'm nervous about fieldwork and I'm excited to work with clients. I'm excited to work with clients for the first time and I'm nervous about field work. And just that simple move, I don't take a pulse check on yourself. How are you feeling? How are you receiving that message just with that small shift? I feel more expansive. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can hold more inside me at the same time. So I have critiques of the OT profession and I think we can do better. Mm-hmm is mm-hmm. different than I have critiques about some things in OT, but I wish we could do better. It's <laughs> right? a growth mindset and versus yeah. a fixed It's a growth mindset. mindset. Yeah. yeah. So I think in terms of a, a t- quick tangible tool, anytime you're about to say yes, but, or no, but, trop, swap that to a, a yes and, <laughs> and see where that takes you and reflect on what you're feeling with um, as you go through that process too. Um, and... Uh, I forgot your initial question. Oh, how do we take us to pleasure? Yeah. Yes. So I think that's one thing. We have to start being comfortable with nuance and we have to start expanding. We have to have that growth mindset, like you said, but also just a build the habit around expanding and holding nuance versus um, some of the more polarizing and lim- self-limiting ways of thinking. Oh, yes, but, oh, yes, I want to work on sex and intimacy, but no one's going to pay me for it yes, I want to do this, but no one in my clinic does that. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, I want to work on sex and intimacy and no one in my clinic does it. So therefore I have to approach it this way, right? It's an opportunity. It's something different. Um, And I think that's fair to have those um, concerns. But once we switch it to and, right, it's a, yes, I want to work on sex and intimacy and no one in my clinic does it. Therefore, Mm -hmm. I am going to seek outside resources because I can't ask my clinical peers to help me in this process at least right now, right, is different than, oh, but no one does it here, therefore I won't do it, Mm -hmm. which I think I see more often, and that's when folks are usually reaching out to me to say, how do I make this happen at my clinic? I'm like, you reached that point of, yes, I want to do this, and no one here can help me do this, therefore I'm going to reach to someone outside to help me figure out how to do this, Um, and I think that's the same thing true of thinking about pleasure and joy, right? We have to start with, yes, this person has a referral for I don't know, carpal tunnel. Let's Mm -hmm. pick something super basic. And I need to get a splint and teach them um, these different exercises. And what they do once they've mitigated or reduced those pains and symptoms are going to be things that are going to bring them pleasure. Therefore, I am going to include this in my treatment plan. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's one part. I think another part is for us to all explore our own pleasure and joy and to ask ourselves that question. What did I do today that brought me joy? What did I do today that brought me pleasure? And, you know, if you're starting out, I might say one of your things to start with is what today was satisfying about my day. And then follow that with 
what about my day brought me joy or pleasure? And you might notice that those are two different things frequently. Well, this conversation or you might find is... that what was satisfying, right, was not pleasurable. <laughs> the conversation is all those. This conversation is bringing me joy and pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> and it's satisfying. Right? I'll be fine. Yeah. And I could say, you know, this conversation is really satisfying. That feels good. But to be honest, this pleasure, this conversation has been a joy. <laughs> And that's just like a totally new level. Even if I like see our faces, right? We all lit up. We all started yeah. smiling. I said, oh, this is satisfying. We're like, nod, nod. Okay. Yeah, okay. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay. But like, this is a joy. <laughs> this is a joy. pleasure to engage with y'all in this way. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, you, you can feel it. Yeah, you know, it feels different. Feel different. Yeah. Well, Dr. Joseph Christian Unko. This has been absolutely fabulous. Um, Very much a pleasure and a joy to have you on OT After Dark. You can find them um, on Instagram at The OT Network. And that is, again, the network for LGBTQIA plus concerns in occupational therapy. Um, And again, thank you very much to Joe. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. <laughs> pleasure, an absolute pleasure. That was an absolute pleasure. Sparked a lot of joy. Joyful conversation that I hope speaks to everybody about the importance of finding joy and pleasure in all areas of occupation. Absolutely. And if you want more information, you can find Joe at on Instagram at the OT Network. Um, Again, great conversations with Joe, discussing everything from the development of the book to the uses of the erotic to moving beyond satisfaction and into pleasure and joy. Don't ever forget. Sex Sex is an ADL. ADL. Cheers. Cheers!